The first member of the Dorst family to arrive in America was eight generations ago. Peter Dorst, who was born in Bavaria, Germany in 1774, came to Pomeroy, Ohio in 1838. He brought his wife Mary, his son Henry, whose wife was Margaret, and their grandson Jacob. Jacob's son Arthur was the first Dorst born in the US in 1868 in Ohio. Arthur and his wife had two sons, Jacob and his little brother Dwight, and they moved to Pittsburgh in 1904. Dwight was convicted of murdering a butcher in the robbery of a butcher's shop and was executed in 1931 during the Depression. Jacob begat Ralph. Ralph begat David Allen. David Allen begat David Robert. David Robert begat Miles and Wesley. It's good to know where you came from. And I'm thankful to my Aunt Margie for researching our family tree. I hope that uh, Mark Rich was telling me he goes back many, many generations he can trace. I hope you've done some work or or know where your roots are. I've seen even some some records on my mom's side and the main thing I remember is that my grandmother is the 11th cousin of George Washington, or 11th removed, so I don't know what that makes me, 13th cousin. And uh, I say that to balance out. We've got a hero, we've got Uncle Dwight, the murderer. So I think everybody's got a little bit of hero and villain in their family tree somewhere. Christmas, we are told, is all about family. And we know as believers that that's not quite it. But today's sermon is going to go with that. Let's go with family. We're gonna talk about family, Jesus' family, his extended family, his ancestors all the way back to Abraham. Elisha, if you could put up for slide, um, this is probably the most thrilling sermon graphic you've ever seen. (laughs) Three columns of names. But if you'll turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter one verses one through 17. If you don't have your Bible, this is, the highlights are up there. (laughs) The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, 
and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation in Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So I know that you all feel tremendously spiritually blessed by this enthralling list of names, and I'm sure you're ready for communion now. But let's spend some time here Why should we be interested in this passage of scripture? Is this some sort of macho thing where bring us the hardest parts of scripture and we'll preach them? I mean, we've done the Song of Songs. We've done Revelation. Come on, now it's time for some smaller passages, the hard ones. No. We're easing into Advent, that's what we're doing. We're getting there. Um... But a better question might be, why would Matthew start his gospel with a genealogy? Doesn't he know that as a writer you have to hook people at the beginning? You've gotta start with something that grabs your reader so they don't throw it away and pick up one of the other trillion books that have been written. But maybe even deeper, why would God start the New Testament with this list. Well, we know that Matthew, of all four gospel writers, is writing to a Jewish audience. I'm sure that all the gospels got circulated through the churches and the Jews, but he was primarily concerned with showing how Jesus fulfilled prophecy and how the Jewish mind received him. And he's gotta prove to the Jews that Jesus descended from not only Abraham, who all the Jews, Father Abraham, all the Jews descended from him, but King David. And remember that Matthew wrote his gospel shortly after Jesus' death, certainly well within the lifetime of people who knew Jesus, Joseph and Mary, could have proved this false. So he brings out the record and says, here it is. Before he gets into any of the angels, magi, any of the Advent story, Christmas story. And we need to see that Jesus is rooted in history from the very beginning. For the Jews who questioned his descent, John 7, 42, there's real, the, the people are wondering, is this the Messiah? Could this be? And, and yet it's, they say, John 7, 42 says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? They didn't know. And so Matthew makes sure, that's front and center. 
He is descended from David. And we need to know that Jesus is rooted in history as well. We have a savior that entered time and space at a specific point in time, in a specific location, in a place. He is a historical fact with a family and an ancestry. One commentator tells the story of a young Hindu man in India who came to Christ, professed conversion and knowledge of Jesus Christ after reading this very first chapter of Matthew. And he said that for the first time he had found a religion rooted in history opposed, as opposed to the mythologies of Hinduism and Buddhism. And here we see the link with the Old Testament is right there at the beginning of the new. Now, before we get too far into the genealogy, talking about it, we need to, I need to let you know that there are some problems. There's another genealogy, if you look over quickly in Matthew chapter three, we're not gonna read it, chapter two. Luke, what I say? I said Matthew. Luke chapter three, thank you. And it's very different from Matthew's. It goes backwards from Christ back to Adam. And much of the content is different. And there have been attempts to harmonize it all through the ages. But Albert Barnes, as a commentator, he, bas- he says this, no two passages of scripture have caused more difficulty than these. And various attempts have been made to explain them. So the commentators, they, they, they look through the options and they say, we don't really know. Uh, let me just briefly give you three of the solutions. The first one's probably the easiest, is, is that Matthew is tracing Joseph's line and Luke is tracing Mary's line. A lot of church fathers accept that, a lot of scholars now still accept that. Maybe a little too neat and clean though. There's some other options for us. The second one is that they're both lists for Joseph. Uh, Matthew traces Joseph's genealogy through his real father, Jacob, and Luke traces through his stepfather, Heli. And so you see, you can look at both immediately after Joseph, you have two different names. And so they figure that Heli was his legal father and so Luke is concerned with his legal ancestry and Matthew with his real father. The third solution, and this is one put forth by John Calvin, uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, a number of scholars, theologians through the ages, is that Matthew is dealing with the uh, rulers or what, who would have been the rulers at the time. Because if you look after David, after David is really where it splits, Matthew goes with Solomon and follows the line below that and you hit ruler after ruler throughout the Old Testament. And so those, they might not have been the direct descendants, but they were who were on the throne at the time. And Matthew is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the rightful heir to the kingship of David through all these other kings. Luke goes with David's son Nathan and traces the real uh, ancestry. Regardless of which solution 
we use, and I tend to favor the last one. Matthew 1 represents Joseph's line, somehow. Um, But that brings up another question. Why do we even care about Joseph's line when Joseph had nothing to do with Jesus' birth? Right? The Holy Spirit was the real father. So why are we worried about who Joseph's ancestors were? Was Matthew undermining the virgin birth? Uh, I think that's very unlikely since the rest of chapter one deals with Mary being impregnated by the Holy Spirit and uh, the angel appearing to Joseph and saying don't divorce her, take her as your wife, and how this fulfilled the Isaiah's prophecy. And furthermore, in verse 16, when it says, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, that word of the whom is feminine in the Greek. So Matthew is clearly pointing out Jesus was born of Mary and not of Joseph. But we need to understand that adoption conferred all the rights of sonship and inheritance. And so that when Jesus took, when Joseph took Jesus as his own, Jesus got the whole family too. And royalty and tribal identity passed through the father, the father's line, not the mother's line. But there's another problem besides sorting through these genealogies, and that is that Matthew leaves out a number of names. I've put asterisks in a few places. Those are not in your Bible, but there's a few asterisks where he just skips some names. And there's probably, we don't know for sure, but at the end, there's probably some names missing because Luke's passage goes much longer. He lists, I think, 27 names, and Matthew only has 14, so there's probably some missing, but we don't have those records from the, in between the, the testaments. And so the question comes up is, well, if, if we're missing names, isn't Matthew's little trick of using 14 generations a little artificial? And it is a little artificial. He's created this for us to easily mem- remember it. Uh, He's given us a memory aid in seeing this. Um, The generations, some say that 14 is twice the perfect number, so that was a great number to use. Other people said uh, that there was a way to use the consonants in Hebrew and assign number uh, to them. So the D in David was four, and the V was six. So if you add four plus six plus four, it's 14. Um, and that sounds far-fetched, like some Bible code, but they say it's very well attested in uh, Jewish literature. So maybe he's using one of those reasons. But for whatever reason, Joseph has created a bit of a theological genealogy. And we look at it and say, well, oh, I wish you were more accurate. I wish you would ex- just list it exactly, but... Barnes commentary says this is not strictly accurate, yet it was the Jewish way of keeping their records and it answered their purposes. Does this call the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture uh, into question? No, I don't believe it does. And, And part of the solution is the Greek word for beget or to father, that verb, is egonesin. 
And many of the translations, as the ESV does, have turned it into a noun, the father of. But it can also mean to be one's ancestor. So if you skip, let's say there's, there's probably three missing names after Joram right in the middle. But when he says Joram, the ancestor of Uzziah, even if he skips a few names, it still works. So we, we see that Matthew is still accurate even while he's using this for his purposes. So I'm not gonna solve all of these problems. I just want you to be aware very quickly that there are some issues with this. And it's not as cut and dried as you might think. But let's delve into this genealogy. And I like that um, Matthew has given us the three big uh, eras of Israel's history because it's what most of us preachers would probably do anyways is divide them up. Because in the first column, we have the part of Israel's history that was the patriarchs and the judges and everyone that came before David. And then the middle column is from David and then all of the rulers that came after him in Judah. And then the last one is after the exile of Judah to Babylon in 588. It's all of the line after that. And what I love about reading this is that it's like a midterm review. Have any of you read through uh, the one-year Bible? And I realize, well, I guess you'd have to do a chronological because sometimes they take from a little bit from the old, a little bit from the new, and then a psalm and a proverb. But if you were reading straight through the scriptures, you would get through the Old Testament and feel really good about yourself. That's an accomplishment. And you'd see all those stories and all those ways God worked, and now you get to the beginning of the new, and it's time to review a little bit. Time to think back over some of the highlights, some of those names. There's Abraham, who was called in an old, childless state to enter into a covenant with the Lord where he was promised that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And I think it's so cool that at the end of the genealogy, the end of the list, we have a virgin birth. At the beginning of the list, we have a miraculous birth to a woman in her 90s. Nice bookends there. And Isaac is that miraculous heir. But Abraham almost killed him at God's command. That would have been quite the genealogy. Abraham begat Isaac, killed him, the end. But we know that God said, no, stop. We're gonna, I'm still gonna fulfill my promises through Isaac. And Isaac's twin sons, the younger, was Jacob. And he was chosen by God over his older brother, Esau, to be the blessed son. And yet he still has to steal the birthright from his brother. And then he's the one that has 12 sons by four different women. And it's really messy and twisted, but there's, he gets tricked into marrying one sister, and then he's waiting for Rachel, the other, and then they give him their maids, and now you have 12 sons of Jacob, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. But it's always bugged me, I don't know if it's bugged you, why 
is Jesus from the tribe of Judah. I mean, I figured, okay, if it's not, the firstborn was Simeon. I'm sorry, uh, Reuben. The firstborn was Reuben. Okay, we see that God like switches things around, doesn't always get the first one, so it must be Simeon, the secondborn, right? No, it's not him. Okay, well, uh, it must be Joseph, right? Because the Bible spends a ton of time on Joseph, and he's the hero at the end of Genesis. He saves not only his family and the rest of Israel, but he saves all of Egypt, storing away all that grain for seven years during the famine. It must be Joseph, right? No. Well, then it must be Levi, because he's the priestly line, and the Messiah must come from the most spiritual brother, right? No, it's not. It's Judah. It's Judah the fourth born. The guy who accidentally impregnated his daughter-in-law. Really? It's him. If you go back and read the end of Genesis, which we're heading into Genesis. This is sort of a coming of previews too of our next sermon series in the, in the spring, or end of January. At the end of Genesis, Jacob blesses and curses all of his sons, and there, you can read what he says about each one of them. And he says, first, Reuben, firstborn, you've defiled my bed. You don't get my blessing. Simeon, Levi, the next two, the second and third, you get, you, I'm cursing you because you've killed in your anger. And then he gets to, to Judah, the fourth son. And in Genesis 49, eight through 12, he says, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, but from between his feet. And we see the prophecy that the Christ will come through Judah, that the scepter shall not depart the ruler's staff, and Jesus is a fulfillment of that prophecy, as he is of all Old Testament prophecies. After that, we don't know a whole lot about those men other than when we get to Jesse. And David, of course, was the youngest, the smallest of Jesse's sons, but he was chosen by God to lead his people. His 40-year reign is the high point of Israel's existence, their golden years. And then his son Solomon is, is mighty, wise, amazing wealth and splendor in Israel, but his heart is pulled away by foreign wives. And when his son Jeroboam succeeds him, he rules so harshly that part of Israel breaks away and follows Rehoboam. And so the split of, the, of Israel happens and you have the 10 tribes in the north and the two tribes of Judah in the south. And so the rest of those names in the middle column, Rehoboam down, are the Judean kings. Some of the highlights and lowlights as we work through there of the kings of Judah. Asaph is also known as Asa. He reigned for 40 mostly godly years. He reformed Judah, he brought revival. And then his son Jehoshaphat ruled for 25 years, taught the people God's laws, and brought peace and prosperity. Then Joram, and the, probably the three kings after him were the asterisks, was a terrible king. 
as were his three immediate descendants who Matthew probably leaves out because they're bad kings as well. Uh, Uzziah and his son Jotham ruled 68 years successfully and were good politically and economically, but not spiritually. Then we have Hezekiah, again, one of the best kings that Judah had. And he brought worship and the, the godly festivals and repentance back to Judah. But then his son Manasseh went the opposite way. He brought back the idols. He sacrificed his own son. And the Assyrians led him away with a fish hook through his nose, which he deserved. Josiah then, after that, one of the best kings as well, comes to the throne at age eight. And it becomes on fire for the Lord, finds the book of the law and teaches it and carries on extensive reforms for 30 years. But shortly after his death, the exile happens. God's judgment comes as it had come to the north 150 or so years before. And we don't hear much about the rest of this list after the exile except for Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. You see him a few, and he's one of the ones who when they came, returned to Jerusalem, he helped rebuild the temple. Uh, in, in Zechariah, the Lord associates the rebuilt temple with Zerubbabel. So, but if you've been listening and watching, you know that I've left four names out. Because ancient genealogies usually don't bother mentioning women, and Jewish ones certainly don't emphasize Gentile outsiders. But Jesus has four women in his family tree, not counting Mary, but looking back, you see four women who are sinners and Gentiles. Tamar, story, I don't, she's not up there, but with Judah, in the text, you see, Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38, and I've alluded to it already. She, her husband had died, and the, his brother was supposed to bring her children, but he doesn't, and so God killed, actually killed both of them, and Judah, her father-in-law, says, wait for my youngest son to grow up. When the son grows up, he doesn't do anything about it, so Tamar tricks Judah and dresses up like a prostitute. And then she becomes pregnant from that. He doesn't know it was her, and he says we should burn her when he finds out she's pregnant, but she says, I have your staff, I have your possessions, it's you. And you wonder, this woman, this woman is in Jesus' family tree? She's Jesus' great, 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 40 times great grandmother? Rahab was actually a real prostitute, wasn't pretending, he was a Canaanite outsider. When the spies, when the Israelite spies came to Jericho to check everything out, she hid them and threw her lot in with Israel and eventually married in. But she was a Moabite, uh, a descendant of the incest between Lot and his daughter. Deuteronomy says Moabites can't even come into the tabernacle. Ruth was a Canaanite, 
a widow who stayed with her mother-in-law in a foreign land until she found an Israelite husband and the line continued. Bathsheba, Matthew doesn't even name her, but she's the wife of Uriah. And she's probably a Hittite like her husband was. She is the low point of David's reign. Right, the wife of one of his generals whom David has an adulterous affair with and then covers it up by killing her husband. And what's amazing is that God took away that baby that resulted from the adulterous affair, but then blessed them with a baby later who was Solomon. And God chose Solomon to lead over David's other children from his other wives. And so most genealogies would have gone to great lengths to prove the purity of the line. But Matthew seems to be going out of his way to point out the scandalous, the pagan in Jesus' bloodline. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 13, that I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came for sinners, but it seems that he came through sinners as well. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that God is showing the gospel of mercy even here by including these men and these women and showing that he forgives sin, that he works in spite of it. And the gospel that will go out to all nations is hinted at as he even shows how it's come into the line of Jesus. Martin Luther said that God intended for the reader of the genealogy to say, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. What else can we see in this genealogy? What else can we take from this? It doesn't seem like the most applicable section of scripture. But I would say this is a great reminder that we can never approach the New Testament without the old. You simply cannot understand the New Testament without the groundwork, the framework, the prophecies, the typologies, and the interaction of God with his people. I I knew a pastor whose basic attitude was, I know the Old Testament, I know it's there, I've read it, but we don't preach that. We don't teach that, we preach Christ and him crucified. And I think he was the ultimate throw the baby out with the bathwater because he said, well I've just, people get into the really obscure parts of the Old Testament and sit in all kind of time and, or they use it very moralistically and it has nothing to do with Christ. But I think that's a grave mistake. As we see, the Old Testament is quoted or alluded to on almost every page of the New Testament. I mean, Matthew could have started his book with, this is a new era. Forget all you knew before. Jesus is a new thing. Let's come out of our Jewish background completely and forget what's come before and jump into the new wineskins, but he didn't. He gave us this amazing link to the Old Testament. 
And we know that everything that came before points forward to Christ. And everything that comes after finds its center in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. As I I alluded to, started to talk about earlier, your faith in Christ is grounded in historic fact. Jesus didn't just appear out of thin air. He didn't start teaching as a fully formed, mature adult. And nobody knew where he came from. He was a flesh and blood person who was born on a calendar date to a family that had a history. And not only that, but Jesus' history set him as the heir of the kingship of David. He is the descendant of David, he's the king of the Jews, and he is the king of heaven. The life of faith is to recognize Jesus as Lord and King and ourselves as his subjects and to commit ourselves to him as the expression of our highest loyalty. I read something else that I thought was very fascinating. John MacArthur says that when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, all of the genealogical records and ancestry records of the Jews were destroyed. So you couldn't go look up your ancestry at the temple as you could for all of the history even through the exiles getting taken away to Babylon all the, the Jews kept their records but 40 years after Christ died God judges Jerusalem Israel the Jews and has Jerusalem invaded the temple destroyed what does that mean anyone claiming to be the Messiah after that point couldn't back it up with the record. Gee, if you weren't the Messiah by then, you can't prove you are after that. So if you are waiting for a Messiah to fulfill the Old Testament and sit on the throne of David, there are no other candidates beyond Jesus' time. As I look at this list, I I marvel at God's sovereignty of how he designed Abraham to Christ. And the line of Christ was so fragile. A slip of Abraham's knife. Uh, Later in the exile, one man stood between the line completely stopping. Galatians 4.4 calls it the fullness of time when Jesus came. That all of the conditions at the time were exactly as God intended. And this line pointed everything to Jesus. And we have one person at the end of this line. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. And Christ is the Greek form of the Aramaic word Messiah, which means anointed one. And what better way to head into Advent than to hear how God brought about the birth of his anointed one who brings salvation with him. And finally, I take from this 
list, sort of spiritualizing it, that every person on this list contributed in a physical way to bringing Jesus Christ to the world physically. And as you think through that, you are a part of a long line of believers who bring Jesus Christ to the world spiritually. We are his body, his people that continue to do our part. We can't bring Jesus to every generation. We bring Jesus where we are, when we are. Father God, thank you so much for your inspired word, for your inerrant, perfect scriptures from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, Lord. Thank you for every part of it, the parts we understand, the parts we don't understand. And God, thank you that as we look through the Old Testament, we understand what you were doing. We understand why the, the scripture writers included the stories of Tamar and Ruth who seemed to not have anything to do with the main plot, but we realize they are contributing to the line that will bring about the savior of the world. God, thank you for your great design through history that when you were ready, that when the perfect time came, you brought your son, put him in human flesh, that he was born, lived a perfect life, and died a brutal death on the cross, became, was resurrected, Lord, that our sins would be forgiven. Lord, help us to joy at that and see the cross even at Christmas time. And God, to understand that we bring Jesus to a fallen world through your call and through your Spirit's leading and help. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless our time, the rest of this, this morning, this service, as we celebrate your supper as we celebrate your shed blood and broken body for us. We ask all these things in the Messiah's name, Jesus Christ, amen.